Hebrews 1. Let's finish chapter 1 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. I shall uh, read the last two verses and then we shall pray and then we shall get stuck in. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits who are sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the richness and the deepness of your word. We thank you for the Old Testament. We thank you for, for the progressive revelation, how you spoke through your prophets progressively through the centuries, building layer upon layer upon layer. But now how in this era you have spoken finally through your Son. Thank you for the apostles and prophets of the New Testament church that have given us this scripture before us that we might know your way and know your will and know your plan. And as we gaze upon your word again today, as I prayed at the start of the service, may the, the radiance of your Son delight our souls more than anything else. Enrich us today, Lord, by your word we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we come to the end of Hebrews 1 today. It's, uh, it's going to be a long journey through Hebrews, but the first chapter is almost done. The, since we had the prologue, the first four verses, which introduced us into the book, we've had from verse 5 through to the end of the chapter this extended argument which is basically saying... Jesus is superior to the angels. And to, to make that argument, the writer of Hebrews has quoted seven Old Testament passages. And we have been through them the last few weeks. And in uh, previous weeks, we've done larger chunks. And those of you who are looking ahead and seeing where we're going, you might wonder, hey, how is it, Anthony, that you've, you've referenced multiple Old Testament passages in, in the previous weeks, but now you've left us just two verses at the end and just one verse. One, one quote, one, one Old Testament verse, one quotation. And the answer to that question is very simple. That Hebrews as a book relies so heavily on the Old Testament. We've already seen that. We're, we're looking at probably 60 plus different quotations and allusions, references to the Old Testament within this book. But there is no part of the Old Testament that is more significant to the book of Hebrews than Psalm 110. I'm not even going to be teaching you everything about Psalm 110 today, because I couldn't. The book of Hebrews is going to teach us about Psalm 110. When we get to the end of Hebrews next year, we will know Hebrews very well, but we'll also know Psalm 110 very well. Psalm 110 is so intrinsically linked to the book of Hebrews 
that some commentators think that Hebrews is a sermon on Psalm 110. So here I am preaching you a sermon on Hebrews, but Hebrews is itself a sermon, and many would argue that the, the base text for Hebrew, Hebrews as a sermon was Psalm 110. It, it's everywhere in the book of Hebrews. We see verse 1 of Psalm 110 re referenced in very clearly in chapter 1, verses th verse 3. We'll reference that in a minute. This verse here, verse 13. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 12. Chapter 12, verse 2. Verse 4 of Psalm 110 is in chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 20. Chapter 7. I won't even go on. Chapter 7 is eight times. Eight times Psalm 110 is in reference in the book of Hebrews. And it's also alluded to in, in, again in chapter 10 and elsewhere. It it's just saturates the book of Hebrews. It's everywhere. What's even more fascinating is this. That if you break Hebrews down into chunks... If you say, here's the first section of Hebrews, and here's the argument in this section, and then he moves on to a slightly different topic in this section of Hebrews, then every section begins with a reference of Psalm 110, and every section ends with a reference to Psalm 110. So here we're in chapter 1. So here's chapter 1, the first section of Hebrews. And I already pointed out to you when we did the prologue that in verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And here's the key bit. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is a direct allusion, as we're going to see in a moment, to Psalm 110, verse 1. And now we come to the end of this section and the end of this argument, and what do we have? Again, a reference to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, not only does Psalm 110 saturate the book, not only does it bookend every single section of Hebrews. But also, it is something that, that here is an integral part of his entire argument. It's an integral part of his entire argument. And I'll, before we get into it, I'll take you one, even one step further. The structure of Psalm 110 seems to parallel the structure of Hebrews in the sense of argument. So let's turn to Psalm 110, and I'll show you that. So let's look at Psalm 110. Whenever we see something in the, quote, the New Testament, quoting the Old, we always go there and have a look. We want to see it in context. We want to know what's going on there. And uh, consider this week your introduction to Psalm 110. You're going to get intimately familiar with this over the next year, but for now, this is your introduction, okay? So that's what we'll look at this week. And here's the key verse right there at the beginning. The Lord, literally Yahweh. When you see Lord in capital letters, you know that's a translation of the Hebrew Yahweh, the name of God. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. So Yahweh, God, 
is speaking to my Lord. So there's the Psalm of David. So David's Lord, David's master, David's Adonai, he is being spoken to. And Yahweh, sorry, Yahweh is speaking to David's Lord. And this is what is said to the, this person, this, this being who is the Lord of David. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, just about this sitting at the right hand, it's a phrase probably we're very familiar with because we, uh, you know, we, we, if we read our Bibles, we see it again and again, and it's always referring back here to, to Psalm 110, well, usually anyway. But so we understand the context of it. To sit at a king's right hand made you an equal to the king. If you were a, ki a king of a land, a nation, and a king from a neighboring nation came to visit, and they would be seated at your right hand, they're not just a, a subject of yours, they're a fellow ruler. They're a ruler, they're a king themselves. And so they don't sit or kneel before you, they sit at your right hand. You're a king and they're a king. They have equality with you. So what is fascinating about this verse is that whoever this Lord is, Yahweh is saying to this Lord, sit at my right hand. In other words, there's a degree of equality that is going on here. Now, in the context of Scripture, pardon me, that is obviously astounding. This Lord is equal to Yahweh himself. And then he says, until I make your enemies your footstool. It's, again, it's a familiar phrase and one that we perhaps don't think over enough, but the idea is of crushed enemies being laid down and the feet going up and resting on them. God the Father is going to enable the Son to conquer that he might rest and all is done. That's what's being said here. Going on. The Lord, capitals, Yahweh, Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Scepter is the, 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 what the king would hold. It's a sign of ruling and leadership and kingship. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And so he's talking here about the uh, victory over uh, the enemies of the, the Lord, as in Christ. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn, and we will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I keep getting tempted to get dragged into this one, but I'm not. I'm holding back. Chapter 7 is where this really takes effect. Eight references to Psalm 110 in chapter 7 alone. This is when the whole priestly argument comes. But suffice to say at this point, if there is a Lord who is going to be equal to God, whose enemies are going to be crushed and will rest forever, 
then if he is the priest, then his priesthood becomes an eternal priesthood. You are a priest forever. Now, if there's one thing that that tells us, and this is important, folks, it tells us that the priesthood that existed at the time of the writing of the psalm, the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of the Old Testament, it tells us that at the very, very least, that was temporary, limited, and provisional. It wasn't supposed to be forever. Remember the context of Hebrews. The writer is saying to people, don't go back to the Levitical priesthood. We have something better now. And so, Christ is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord, this is little letters, so this is referring to Christ, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. Oh, there's so much more there. The lifting up is a phrase that we see routinely in Old Testament that has connotations, links with Isaiah and what have you. But generally here again, we have the... Uh, we have the uh, the concept here in verses 5 and 6 of victory over his enemies again on the day of wrath. And then in verse 7, we have a reference to his exaltation. In a sense, him lifting up his head is the completion of his victory. And let me just say very briefly, when we see at the beginning of Psalm 110 in verse 1, the exaltation of the Son, sit at my right hand, I'll make your enemies my footstool. We have a parallel with exactly what we're seeing in Hebrews chapter 1. The exaltation of the Son at the right hand of God. Lifted up above the angels, superior, the superiority of the Son. When we come to verses 2 and 3 in Psalm 110, we see the description of his victory over his enemies, and that, that victory of Christ is paralleled in Hebrews chapters 2, 3, and 4 when we talk about Christ overcoming through suffering. Victory through suffering. In verse 4, we see the declaration of his priesthood. And when we get to chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Hebrews, we have the priesthood of Christ explained in intricate and exquisite detail. And so there is that. And then when we get to chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Hebrews, again we're dealing with the accomplishments and victories of Christ, which is exactly what verses 5 and 6 are doing in Psalm 110. And then as Psalm 110 completes with the completed victory and exaltation of Christ, so does the book of Hebrews from midway through chapter 10 through to the end of chapter 12. Do you see... We have parallels here. These, this psalm and this book are intrinsically linked together. So let's have a look then, having looked at the psalm and, and seen it. Well, let's, let's take a minute more just in the psalm and then we'll flick back to Hebrews. But I want you to note just, just a few things here. That the, the context predominantly 
is we have Yahweh, Father God, we have him speaking to the Lord, capital, uh, capital L but little O-R-D, Adonai. This is a reference clearly to one who is equal, sitting at the right hand. And as I said to you so many times before we started Hebrews, we did a series on the visions of Isaiah, Ezekiel and Daniel. And I think for those of you who've been here the last six months, it is abundantly clear that the deity of Jesus Christ is not a doctrine that was invented by the church in the second or third century as some liberal scholars teach today. It is not a doctrine that was realized by the church after the death of Christ. It is a doctrine that was taught throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Psalms, again and again the deity of this of the second person of the trinity the son of god the son of man the righteous ruler the righteous one the anointed one the suffering servant he's everywhere he is who we know as jesus christ and here he is god's equal and it's talking about the time when he will conquer all of his enemies now we know from the book of romans the last two of those enemies in fact, we know, let's be specific, the last of his enemies. And what is the last enemy that Jesus will conquer? Death. Now, if you're sitting here today, and you're older than you were this time last week, then you haven't conquered death yet. So this, this that we're looking at, this hasn't happened yet. It was future to David, and it's future to us. But we see him in verses 2 and 3. Uh, and again, I don't want to do it too much depth because I've got to come back to this again, 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 again. And of course, the advantage for me as a preacher is every time I come back to it, I get to read more. So I'll do a better job if I leave it later. <laughs> That's kind of how I approach it. But just to, to skim over, um, it's interesting that we see in the two sections that deal with him being victorious over his enemies, that in the latter section, verses 5 and 6, there is the corpses and there is the judgment being executed. But in verses 3 and 4, uh, sorry, 2 and 3, there is the sense of more freely worshipping. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. So what we have here is what we call a chiastic structure. I always, uh, to explain that, I always think of the Swedish pop group ABBA because it's kind of A-B-B-A. -B -B -A. You've got like one thing at the end, one thing at the beginning, then the same thing here, the same thing here, the same thing here, the same thing until you get to the middle. And the middle of this psalm, the key thing is his priesthood. But look either side of the priesthood. Just look either side. Either side of it, on the one hand, you've got him conquering his enemies, verses 2 and 3. And on the other side, you have him conquering his enemies, verses 5 and 6. But there's a difference. 5 and 6 is him conquering and the enemies being crushed and destroyed. Verses 2 and 3, as well as the enemies who resist and are destroyed, in verse 3, there are those who are your people. And they offer themselves freely when he comes in power. And note what they're wearing. Holy garments. They've been redeemed. Folks, 
That's us. Verse 3. People who, when the day of Christ comes, we don't hide, we don't run away. You remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They walk with God. Sin comes into the world. God comes. What do they do? They hide. When Christ returns, we won't be hiding. We will welcome him freely in our holy garments because of the blood of Christ. Hey, wasn't that great when we sung that this morning? I place all my trust in your blood. Nothing of me, nothing of you will ever give us holy garments. They'll never make our garments any holier. But the blood of Christ, oh, the blood of Christ is the one thing that makes us clean. That's what all of our hope and all of our trust is in that and that alone. And that's why we'll wear holy garments. And so... The, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. That then, folks, is a new beginning where we start a new era. And so we have then the priesthood. The, the, uh, we might talk in future weeks as we come back to this psalm about the reoccurring theme in the Old Testament of God swearing, his making an oath. But this is something that won't ever be changed he is going to be a priest, an eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek. And again, I'm going to save those details for when we get to those later chapters. Then we see his victory over his enemies, but these are the ones who aren't his people and the kings and the nations are going to be judged and shattered. There's going to be corpses and it will be unpleasant. And then verse 7 is our A of our Abba. It's our bookends. And as the psalm began with the sun exalted sitting at the right hand of God, the enemies, his footsteps, his footstool rather, then here in verse 7, when the battle is done, he drinks from the brook, he lifts up his head, and exaltation and victory is his. There's your psalm, that's what it's all about in a nutshell. Now, the next thing for us to consider, we will normally turn straight back to Hebrews, but guys, this psalm is so significant to the church that it was utilized again and again and again and again. So I want to briefly just have a little look through. If you turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, those of you who've been going through Mark's Gospel with us in the evenings will be familiar with this passage. But I want you to understand why this psalm is so significant to the church and why it becomes so significant to Hebrews, okay? And the key verse in this whole process is Mark chapter 12. And by, and by the way, if, if you went to Matthew 22 or Luke 20, it's, it's in the parallels in the Gospels as well. But in, in uh, Mark 12 verse 35, as Jesus taught in the temple, in the context here, he's teaching in the temple. He spent the last chapter condemning. The temple's done. The temple's finished. It's over. It's corrupt. Its, its purpose has come to an end, and it's over and it's done. That's what the whole fig tree being cursed was about. The fig tree was the temple. It's being cursed. There's no more fruit to come from a temple. It's over. The temple's done. And now, following that condemnation, he's in the temple. And he says, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? The Christ, obviously meaning Messiah. They, they don't, you know, we think Jesus Christ. Sometimes people think, was that his family name? Was he, you know, Jesus Smith, Jesus Jones, Jesus Christ? No, no. Christ means Messiah. Messiah. 
So they believed, obviously, in a Messiah, just that he wasn't the Messiah. That's what they believed. But how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, otherwise it's inspired, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Psalm 110 verse 1, same verse quoted in Hebrews. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now listen, I wish I could teach Mark 12 all over again. My preparation for Hebrews means I feel I'm better able to deal with this now. But look at the context here. He's preaching in a temple that's being condemned, that's come to an end, that's over. And he's pointing them to Psalm 110, which tells that there's going to be a different priesthood that's going to be eternal. That's no coincidence. He's pointing them to the psalm, having spent at Mark 11, saying, that system is over, that priesthood is over, that sacrificial system is over. He now in chapter 12 says, here's your replacement. It was spoken of long ago. I think that's kind of cool myself. So he says that, but the question he's asking is, is how can the scribes, those, those who are writing, say that, and notice that the scribes here wouldn't just be those writing the scripture, they would specifically in the context of Mark refer to the experts of the law in that day. So let's look at it in that context. How can the experts of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? In other words, he is saying that the common understanding at the time of Christ was that Psalm 110 referred to the Messiah. That's really important to understand. The idea that Yahweh would say to my Lord, that Lord, that second Lord, is the Messiah, and it's how it was understood by the enemies of Jesus. This isn't a Christian invention. They understood the Lord, the one who would conquer his enemies, to be the Messiah. So he says, how can they say that he's the son of David? Why? Because David himself calls him the Lord. So what Jesus is doing is saying, look, here's your issue here. You've got a Messiah who's the son of David. Son would be sort of below, typically, socially. And yet, David, who's above him, he's a father, calls him Lord. So the Messiah is above him. How can that be? So what Jesus is doing is he's pointing to this, to this psalm to have them think about the identity of the Messiah. He has to be descended from the line of David, and he is one who is greater than David. Now, Jesus is clearly pointing them to himself, because if you turn a few pages over to Mark chapter 14... And verse 62, when Jesus is about to be condemned and he's about to be crucified, when he's questioned in Mark 14 and verse 61, he remains silent and makes no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? Notice there the repetition. Jesus was teaching them in Mark 12 about the Christ from Psalm 110. And they ask him, are you the Christ of Psalm 110? And what does he say? 
Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Psalm 110, Daniel 7 combined and he says, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the one who will be seated at the right hand of the Father, the one whose enemies we made his footstool, yes, I am. Blasphemy. And they ripped their clothes. He taught them the passage, but they didn't understand. So, when we go beyond Christ into the New Testament, into the, the latter part of the New Testament, Jesus has set this up for us. Like a game of volleyball. Jesus has pushed the ball up in the air. And now all the later New Testament writers, all they've got to do is smash it down. He has said, Psalm 110, you've always known it's the Messiah. That's talking about me. That's who I am. And boy, did they run with it. Boy, did they run with it. Let's turn, shall we, together to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, everybody is, uh, if you think of Old Testament quotations in Acts 2, everybody automatically thinks of Joel, but after Joel he quotes Psalm 16, and then at the end of the sermon that Peter gives in uh, Acts 2, he quotes Psalm 110. And I want to read to you from Acts 2 and verse 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So David's dead. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath, did you remember that from Psalm 110, verse, verse whatever it was, that he, he was swearing on an oath? Uh, verse 4, I, God says, I swear, priest forever, order of Melchizedek, I swear. God swore with an oath to him, he would set one of his descendants on a throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Psalm 110 is his crescendo, his finale, the, the slam dunk of his argument as he ends it. Notice his conclusion. His conclusion is, is that God has made him in the sense of proving him to be both Lord and Christ. Christ, he's shown to be Messiah, but Lord, remember how Lord is used to refer to God? This is saying that Jesus is both God and Messiah. This is, this is showing that Psalm 110 points to the deity of Jesus Christ. If God is God and Christ is at his right hand, he is equal to God and therefore he also must be God. And so we have that connection being made in the book of Acts. 
I won't have you turn there because I don't want to keep you here until mid-afternoon, but I'm just going to briefly read to you a couple more. Um, in Romans 8 and verse 34, um, Paul says, Who is to condemn us? Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Again, Paul makes reference to Christ at the right hand of God, an allusion to Psalm 110. And what does he say on the basis of that? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now you know that verse. You've been encouraged by that verse. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. What's the basis for that? The basis for that is the one that has accomplished our salvation is the one who will crush his enemies and rest on them. He is the one who will conquer everyone. And if he's going to conquer everyone, then we can be absolutely sure that our souls are safe with him. You see that connection? Moving on swiftly to Ephesians 1 and verse 20. I've got them bookmarked, so I'll get there quicker than you, so you're probably best to listen. But he talks about how um, he wants us to know the hope that he's called us to, the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, so he worked his power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, there's your Psalm 110 reference, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the, in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Psalm 110, illusion. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. In other words, in Hebrews, Psalm 110 tells us that Jesus is above the angels. In Ephesians, Paul is saying a very similar thing. He's saying that Psalm 110 tells us that Jesus is above all angelic beings, including the demons. That every power, every authority, every dominion is going to fall. They are included in the enemies that will be under his feet. And he makes a link there, at the end of that section, with the church, which is explained more clearly in Colossians 3 and verse 1. You'll be familiar with this verse. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's scary. Christ is being seated at the right hand of God. Psalm 110, there we are again. But he says, if you've been raised with him. In Paul's mind, we have the authority of Christ because of the indwelling spirit within us. And therefore, spiritually speaking, we are seated at the right hand of God with Christ. Now, immediately that should jar you. You're like, whoa, 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 you just said a few minutes ago that being there at the right hand of God it means you're equal with God, and we're not equal with God. You're not saying we're equal. No, I'm not saying you're equal with God. What I'm saying is, 
is that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. That we are so united with Christ through his death, burial and resurrection that it is as if we are seated with him. There's no authority or power over us. You see how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ? You see that our connection is with the one who will conquer all? You see how secure we are? Last one. He, uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, verse 22. The context of 1 Peter 3 is he's talking about Husbands, wives, masters, servants. It's a theme that Paul teaches in Ephesians and Colossians. But Peter has a little twist on it. Peter is specifically talking in circumstances where one party or the other is not very good. He's talking to wives whose husbands are bad husbands. He's probably in context talking to husbands whose wives aren't good wives. He's talking to servants whose masters aren't good masters. And he's encouraging them all to be submissive and obedient and to keep doing good in the face of evil because the example is Christ and that's what Christ did. And in that context... Having talked about Christ, he says, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins. I'm going to skim this verse, but it's just a sermon in itself. It's a great verse. Just, Just suck it up and soak it in as we read through it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Isn't that great? In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, not doing that today, don't ask, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, when the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. It's not talking baptismal regeneration, it's talking about how the picture of baptism, death, burial, resurrection, that's the unity that we have with Christ and that's the picture of our salvation not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now you read that verse alone and it's just a repetition. But I think it's so powerful in context Because the context of chapter 3 is being badly treated. Whether it's a marriage, whether it's a workplace relationship, and he he opens the whole thing up more broadly than that. And he opens it up to the context of just generally. If anyone treats you badly, if anyone persecutes you, you, then just do good to them. And if you do good to them, you should be okay. But sometimes you do good and you're not okay. So just keep doing good to them. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. And at the end of that whole argument, he's saying... Right hand of God. And when you see right hand of God, you're in Psalm 110. And when you're in Psalm 110, you're seeing his enemies crushed, his enemies defeated. You're seeing the enemies of the footstool. And, and this is what you're thinking. You're thinking, it doesn't matter if that person's against me. It doesn't matter if the demons are against me. It doesn't matter if Satan's against me. It doesn't matter if all the powers of hell are against me. The one who I serve, the one whose example I follow, the one whose lead I take is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's my model, that's my security, that's my salvation, and that's my motivation. Darn it!
That's how I'm going to live. You see how integral Psalm 110 is to the entirety of the New Testament. Because it's looking at Christ as one who, this is no new revelation, but one who for centuries beforehand was pointed at the one who would destroy all enemies. And the narrow-minded Jews of Christ's day, they were thinking Romans. Messiah's going to come and he's going to crush his enemies. Oh, that's the Romans out of our hair. Romans? Please! Daniel chapter 2, nations come, nations fall. Nations come, nations fall. We're talking about the king will have a kingdom that lasts forever. You think the Romans are your problem? You get up in the morning and you're immediately plagued with your own thoughts of sin and pride. From the second you get up to the second you go to bed, your enemy is your sin. And that's the enemy that he's going to crush. And by crushing sin, he crushes death and provides the way for eternal life. Not just for us, but going back through history to all believers, even back to Adam. That's why Psalm 110 is so important. I hope you're as excited about it as I am. Back to Hebrews. Not for long. We're almost done. Let's look at it in context now. I did consider taking two weeks on this, but you can probably tell why. Here's the fun bit. So, essentially for the argument of Hebrews, he's kind of wrapping up. He started his argument in verse 3 by alluding to the right hand of God, alluding to Psalm 110. He's finishing the argument Psalm 110. I think we've done Psalm 110 pretty much to death for now at least, so we understand the point of it, which is, to which of the angels can he say this? Well, I don't need to be repetitive. You, you can just refer to my previous sentences and you can say, yeah, there's no angel that does that. He is above all the angels. That is the absolute, unescapable, slam-dunk, humdinger, irrefutable argument, Jesus is superior. And so he makes the argument in an incontrovertible way. But verse 14 is lovely. Absolutely lovely. He says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You see, this is why I thought about spending two weeks here. Because I know I got about five minutes at tops and other, maybe, maybe not that even. But I could spend a week on this alone and this is rich. So let me just give you the highlights, okay? Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. He's going to sit and have a footstool. His work is done. Drinks from the brook, lifts his head. Everything done and over. The work of Christ is accomplished. There is work to be done, but done through the accomplished work that is already done. The picture of sitting is the picture of one who has done his work and sits down. But the angels are still ministering. In Luke 1, Gabriel comes and he says, where where, where have you come from, Gabriel? I was standing in the presence of God. That's interesting. He was standing. Why? 
because he's always got something else to do. He's a ministering spirit. He's doing, the word ministering here isn't the normal word for servant. It expresses religious devotion. He's constantly doing things to the Lord. That's their job. They are ministering servants for God to do his will. Why? Because God's above them and the angels are below and the angels serve God. Obviously, here's the real cool thing here. Look at this. Sent out to serve. Who are they serving? They're serving God, obviously for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. We're going to see in chapter 2 that Jesus, at his incarnation, becoming man, in a sense, in his humanity, became lower than the angels. We've got God, and then we have the angelic realm, and we're kind of like the, we're kind of the worms in the equation down here. And yet the angels that stand in the presence of God, that are above us, they serve God by ministering to us. You've got an army behind you, folks. The modern urban legend of guardian angels you know, you've probably seen, maybe seen TV shows and stuff based on this. You hear, oh, I, my guardian angel was looking out for me. Well, there's elements of truth there. I'm not sure I buy it wholeheartedly. But the angels are there for us. The angels are definitely there for us. Um, Matthew 18, verse 10, makes a reference regarding to believers, saying, they're angels. You know, it, be a bit tough to make an argument that their angels means one for each of them, but certainly it means they generally are for us generally. Psalm 91 and verse 11 says, He commands His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. That's probably where the phrase guardian in the guardian angels come from. So I don't know if there's one angel assigned to you and one angel assigned to me. But there is definitely, biblically, a sense in which these angels are ministering to us. Now, it's such a glorious truth and I wish I had more time. But let me just show you how that fits into the argument of Hebrews 1 as he just wraps up this argument, whole new section starting next week, okay? How does he wrap this up? He's saying, you think the angels are so great? The sun's greater. Look at this passage. The sun's greater. Look at this passage. The sun's greater. Look at this passage. And he wraps it all up. Psalm 110, absolute, you know, finale, done. The sun is greater. And he says, oh, and by the way, those great angels you look up to, their job's to serve you. <laughs> How cool is that? You don't have to go around worrying about serving angels and this range of that. They're serving you. Now that is something that would make a lot of people go, at that time go, what? What? But the key to the answer is in the phrase, inherit salvation. When we understand that we are the ones who inherit salvation, what brought that salvation, what is entailed in that salvation, then we understand how the superior angels 
would be serving us. So we need to know more about that salvation, right? That's Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be there next time. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious reminder of the God we serve. Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, one God. The Son prophesied to be both God and man from centuries before, that he would atone for our sins. He would be man, that he could die. He'd be God so that his death would be an atoning death. But that ultimately, following his resurrection, he would ascend and he would be seated at your right hand. And Lord, we know that one day, you will make his enemies his footstool. On that day, there will be no more fight. There will be no more struggle. There will be no more sin. And there will be no more death. Father, we rejoice in the salvation you have given to us. And we rejoice in the future completing of our redemption. Amen.